So what's all this about Stripe hiring actual teams rather than just individuals? Is this like a new thing? I think it's an uncommon thing. Maybe somebody's done it before, but um, they're thinking that they would hire people in, in a team who have already worked together and already have like pre-established relationships. Um, so I guess the thinking would be that they would you know, instantly come into the company and work well together. I guess, you know, the, there's, there's, I can think of positives and negatives to how this could work, you know. Um, I guess the, the obvious positive is that they, they know each other, they work well together, mm. they can sort of hit the ground running. Um, they, I guess, Stripe makes it's easier for Stripe to hire because, you know, they can effectively, you know, cut down on the the um, the uh, the drag of hiring by taking on people in one batch rather than trying to bring them in dribs and drabs and sort of training them up in fits and starts. Um, I guess there's less churn because people tend to, I guess, start together, stick together, and then maybe even leave together. So I guess it can be a bit more predictable that way. Some negatives that I could think of might be that... Um, in the comp- it's not good stuff for the- it's not good news for the companies that these people are leaving if um if stripe all of a sudden hire like five of your five of your employees they take like one ux guy one one design lady um, um and then three or four developers in one go mm. um that's that that's not, not really ideal if this sort of like grows to be a more common thing then it could be an absolute nightmare when it comes to retaining people, so they're looking to hire like cross-functional teams. Then do the kind of the agile thing. Yeah, they mention that explicitly in the blog post. Where they say that mm. um, you know they they envisage it being primarily a um, a developer-led sort of thing. You know, it'd be most yeah. developers that apply. Um, but they were they were really open to it being a cross-concern thing. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think that's, I think it's a really good idea. Um, you know, I don't think it's the obviously the only way to do hiring, but if you want to hire quickly, I can see a lot of sense in it. Mm. Like you say, it's the the relationship thing is the hardest the harder thing to build, really, isn't it? Of knowing who can do what and what people's strengths and weaknesses are, and if you can hit the ground with that, then it's a huge advantage. Yeah, totally, because I think especially the mature teams, you know, um, not just mature in terms of how long they've been together, but the actual individuals themselves are quite mature in their fields. Mm. Um, you could almost hire them and sort of almost let them be sort of self, you know, self, um, self-managing, self you know, because they'll know what needs to be done within themselves to get jobs done. You know, you wouldn't necessarily have to micromanage them in the way that you might if you were bringing, you know, sort of people together who never worked together before and not really sure how they could work out. Um, mm. It might lead to sort of cliques in the company. If you're bringing in people who are already friendly, I guess there's a chance they might you know, not necessarily mix well with existing teams. I suppose, though, but I suppose that's a function of how humans are. They will always form cliques, like, uh, or cliques for Richard John. Um, <laughs> he's got a bugbear about that. Yeah. But um, I think that will happen naturally and inevitably anyway. Um and I don't think it's necessarily something that would stop me from doing it, but I think you're right that it might form like a silo, um, which is something more concerned. Like like a clique of friends is one thing, but if it's a clique in the company, it's a real problem, you know, like a professional clique where you can't get work in or out of it. I'm using the terms interchangeably now. Um, th- that would be much more of a problem professionally, I think. Hmm. But it, it again, professionally, if they're professionals, then they should, um, you know, be looking at the boundaries of their team and 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 how they're sort of getting tasks in and out and communicating and stuff already. Really, yeah, that's true. Yeah, alternatively, you could think that maybe they go in as a team and then once they're established in the company, people start to sort of, you know, form connections with other people in the company that might work well for some, and then others might feel a bit sort of jilted. Mm. Um, 
you know, if you come in with somebody who you used to closely work with, all of a sudden you're not uh, working with them closely because they formed relationships elsewhere. Yeah. Then that could be problematic. Uh, it's an interesting dynamic because obviously it's, um, you know, there's like, a, there's like a social aspect there, which probably hasn't really been seen on a regular basis in any, on a common, in a common basis in companies before. It'd be fascinating to study. Well, I've not heard of it at all before this. Uh, well, except for uh, Juliet Papa's team got hired as a whole, as as you might know. Um, someone we used to work with, uh, their whole team got hired as a whole. And that was about, what, six months ago? All right. I wasn't um, aware of that, no. No, well, uh, yeah, and basically what happened is the company they were working for went to the wall and uh, then the whole team decided independently to kind of stay together and then um, were hired by another agency, well, sort of, and then the company was built around the pre-existing team, so they had a pre-existing development team. Obviously, Stripe is much larger, um, but if you were looking to do a startup, you can see how this would be like a really good way of hitting the ground running with, with a team that already works. Yeah, undoubtedly. I think I think it's smart. So um, you guys are hiring at the moment at Bipsync. Would you consider hiring a pre-existing team? Uh, yeah, I guess it, actually, yeah, it could work because the roles we're hiring for at the moment are um, uh, a couple of senior developers, QA and a, a test lead. Um, so you, you think that, that they could come together as a you know as an existing team? That that does those that does you know make sense. Um, in a weird way. I'm not sure it would work for us right now because we are trying to hire as diversely as we can at the moment. Um, the companies largely come together people who knew each other previously. So I guess at the moment we're kind of like a... It's worked really well for us because we've been able to work quickly because we trust each other and know how each other works. But um, for sort of the next phase of the company, I think maybe we want to... If we can make our, uh, our employees' um, you know, sort of backgrounds more diverse then I think um, that's something we'd like to do. Um, in fact, um, Dan um, posted a blog piece on our blog earlier in the week where he was talking about how he wrote the job specs to try to make them, as, like, for example, as, as gender-neutral as possible um, so that they wouldn't sort of appeal to a specific demographic. Um, so we are trying our, our hardest to sort of be as diverse as possible. So then that, that kind of doesn't necessarily work. But then if, you, if you're hiring teams, because I think you know people tend to sort of flock together to you know to people who are similar to them so i don't know whether you necessarily get as diverse a set of candidates as you would otherwise if you hired people who were sort of a, you know, a team exist uh, pre-existing team so yeah maybe i mean i can, I can see the benefits in it and it's something like someone like stripes level um uh, and in sort of stripes field where you're competing with a lot of other companies to hire it makes sense uh, I'm not sure it makes sense for a company like ours right now, but you know I could be wrong about that. What about you? What do you, what do you think about it? Um, I would do it. I think it's a banging idea, basically. Um, I'm far more sort of, I don't know, right-leaning, I suppose, politically, so I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't really be concerning myself with diversity of anything but ideas. Um, I don't care if it's a Martian to be quite frank um if if the person is coming in with the, with interesting ideas and i think that's the diversity that i'm interested in and if the team represents that then that's fantastic um i, I think it's a really good way to grow a company i think uh, and it's something that i think warrants trying um warrants trying 
warrant <laughs> warrants trying. All right. um, I, I think it warrants trying by somebody who's got deep enough pockets to, to you know kind of absorb it. But then again, hiring is always a gamble. Like there's there's. I don't think anyone's got a foolproof hiring system that someone will fit and be productive and be happy in the company. I think, you know, a lot of stuff has been tried over the years, but this is the first time I've heard of a, like a large organization trying something like this. So I'm really curious to see whether it's a good thing because um, bringing a lot of people in quickly um, obviously affects the culture of an organization because you bring in like new personalities, etc. Um, but bringing in a team brings in existing dynamics as well. So that's a whole other thing, sort of sociologically, if you like. Um, but technically, which is where I usually come from, that's sort of the way around that I think, um, like I can see it being massively beneficial. So that's the the side I would come down on. Mm. But I can see, I can totally see the other side as well. Yeah, just, I, I can see it being, but the way it would pan out would be that you get a bunch of people who've got their in-jokes and, just yeah. aren't, aren't necessarily interested in mixing with everybody else, and it, I mean, this is the I guess this is an extreme. It could be the complete opposite. You could get like four mm. people or five people who are really incredibly socially outgoing and sort of yeah. like you know are really good at mixing it in with other people, despite the fact they already have existing relationships. But yeah, I don't know. I just I can just see it being where it. Um, I guess I can see where it would easily be resented by existing employees in the company and sort of. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, you risk running running a company within a company, don't you? Almost like, yeah. but but the, I would contest that that happens anyway, and that's kind of a function of human society is that we're sort of tribal at the micro scale and the macro scale, and we tend to form our little tribes within our bigger tribes. And it's like you got the football fans, and then you got a subset of the football fans that support Team X, and then you got the subset of the football fans that support Team X that like to wear casual sportswear, and then you got a further subset of those that like to get involved in fights. <laughs> but you can't turn that pyramid the other way around and assert that football fans like violence if you see what I mean right. uh, yeah. but what I'm saying is that you've got this kind of Russian doll effect of cliques but you could also identify other cliques that those people are in in other like, spheres of their lives they might be like you know in the young parents club or they might be in the singles club and uh, all this kind of stuff and e- and everyone is, is many things to many people at every phase of their lives and you know so I just think that trying to overthink the sociological aspects of trying to run a, an organization, you can kind of stand on your own fingers to an extent and, and make problems that aren't already there by overthinking it. And I just think it's like something that I would give a go and just see if it does work. And like you say, with a different team, it depends totally on the team, totally on the company. It's just that, but as an idea, I find it really interesting. Yeah, I could see it maybe being more effective for companies who employ people remotely because, you know, mm. if you don't have, if, you, if the, if these people are going to be separately, like geographically located separately anyway, then it'd be mm. great because, you know, you've got a bunch of people who work well together, socially sort of compatible, um, and you don't necessarily have to worry about them integrating with the rest of the, the company, aside from on the occasional on occasional basis, you know? That's a very good point, yeah, because, of course, I work remotely, so obviously I'm, my thinking is going to be yeah. coloured by that. I guess you and Catherine could, you know, form a, a duo, a, a code <laughs> UX duo. We always said we'll never work together, <laughs> just because it's like, you know, obviously we love each other to bits, but I think it's that pressure that that could put on your marriage. Uh, it'd be, I think that could be quite tricky. Yeah. I, I know I know people who do it. I know people who are husband and wife teams that, that, that do that kind of thing, but I just think, oh... Feels like a bit of a pressure. Yeah, I don't know. What you, yeah, it's not for me. I'm not sure what you talk about when you go home in the, the day. You know. Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. How was your day, love? Well, you remember, Gav? You brought that website down, didn't you? <laughs> you tool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm interested to see if they actually. I'm 
you know, they actually hire some people using this scheme now. I mean, I'd be surprised they didn't, given they've mm. some, you know put some effort into marketing it and whether they'll report back and whether it was successful or not. But um, the thing is, I, th- I think your 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 company's example is quite interesting because you're what like a dozen people at the moment. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Ten, you're about ten, a dozen, ten, so yeah, around, yeah, around, yeah, ten. And you're looking you're looking to add what five or six. Um, in yeah, well, all, all together, uh, I think fifteen. But yeah, at the moment, five or six in Cardiff, yeah. Okay, so you would be looking to, you know, add a, add a good fifty percent on top of what you got already in the immediate future. Yeah. Um. So it would be a much bigger impact on your organisation than, say, like IBM were to start hiring teams. Um. So I think, like, for every organisation, it's going to be a different thing. But and also, cost of a bad hire is very high, isn't it? You know, when you you hire someone and you work with them for the six months that it takes to see if they're really going to be a good fit. And then if you want to go your separate ways after that six months, then that's six months investment down the pan and you have to start again. If you were to do that with an entire team, that could be very costly. So I think the contract wording would have to be quite careful in terms of that, you know, you can discuss the the, um, arrangement with individuals, but then if you had to let one go, would the rest of the team get narky? And, you know, I think that is a potential class of problems that would be introduced, particularly for a smaller smaller organisation, I think. Yeah, that would be crazy if you let someone go and then four other people handed in their notice because of that. Yeah. No. I think the phrase, you're breaking up the band, dude, <laughs> yeah. that would be used. And you'd get called Yoko and it'd be awful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's, like I said, there's so much to think about in terms of the dynamics involved in, in hiring people like that. Um, hmm. and then how you manage them and there's a lot to it because I used to be involved in hiring a bit at our last job and I sort of enjoyed it at the time I enjoyed doing the interviews but I think it's because I was young enough not to f- quite feel the pressure of what it actually meant to the business if I made a bad hire you know or contributed to a bad hire obviously I didn't have the the control hmm. I mean, do, do you feel that pressure because you do you do some interviewing right yeah funnily enough I have the exact opposite where um, I was really conscious about getting it wrong um, when I was working with you in the last place and mm. um, actively sort of avoided hiring if I could for two reasons. Yeah. One that one that I was I was nervous about getting it wrong, hiring somebody that I then didn't want to work with or mm. you know, cause problems with somebody else or cause problems with the company. Um, and secondly, I, I didn't like being responsible for somebody not getting a job. Like I, yeah. Ideally, I'd want everybody to get a job and then if there were a couple of good candidates and you had to pick one of them, I feel really awful for the one that didn't get, that didn't make the cut, or the two that didn't make the cut, um, and it used to really bring me yeah. down. So, I, I just thought, oh, I'm, I'm best off out of bed rather than let somebody else who's, who enjoys it, mm. you know, um, and is good at it, and like yourself, you know, do that sort of thing. I'm doing it again now at Bipsync, mm. but I'm, I wouldn't say enjoying it more, but certainly I'm more than happy to take on the responsibility because the company's small and um, it being like a product-led, you know, startup. We really have a sort of a stake in wanting to see the company do well. It's in our best interest for the company to do well. So, therefore, it means that I actually, you know, do want to be responsible if I can for hiring, you know, a good, a good team. So, it's, mm. whereas before, I guess I didn't have a responsibility in the, in the company beyond, you know, doing what was asked of me to earn my salary. Uh, yeah. Now it's it's wider than that. You know, the the company's the company's um, success is my success in a way. So it's because you're a pig, isn't it? He used to be a chicken. Is that is, is that what it is? It, it's how, yeah, it's, it's the old joke about um, who's the most committed to breakfast. Is it the pig or the chicken? Because the chicken lays the egg, but the pig goes in the breakfast. And it's like, well, you know, you're much more obviously committed or, well, invested now because you have a more personal stake in a in the organisation. 
Yeah, um, exactly. So yeah. I I can see why that would mean that obviously you'd be more invested in hiring the right people and making sure they were, you know, they were going to challenge you, they were going to push you, stretch you. And that was what I, that's the side I enjoyed actually about interviewing was, was like I was sort of mentioned on diversity of ideas and, um, an experience and the way that people um, come across and the way that people express themselves and the experiences that they've had and how interesting that can be to sit and talk to people in interviews. I used to actually really enjoy that and just sit and because I, then I can sit and talk about computers, which obviously, as you know, I'll do all day. And um, yeah. it's really nice to hear oh, at the, our organization, we did X, Y, and Z, and we found that this happened and this approach and that approach. And I find that that's one of the parts that I really enjoy about software is comparing ideas and that's why i still do talks on the conference circuit um well meetup circuit really I'm, although i am doing the port 80 conference uh, this week at the time of recording nice. uh, which i'm a little nervous about do you know joel's 47 who organizes uh, no 46 isn't he i think well he's, it said 47 in the paper he does not look it i think i think that literally got backdated to 46 but yeah <laughs> um yeah i i was genuinely gobsmacked when I saw he that. He looks good for it, doesn't he? Blimey. Yeah, I don't know why he's drinking. I thought I mean, he my age, yeah. I want, I want some of what he's on. What was the talk title again? It was to do with um, coding. On Friday. Yeah. <laughs> it's computers and uh, software <laughs> and that, yeah. yeah. Um, build tools. Yeah, it's build tools. Um, so I'm pre- One of the things that I read this week, which I can't remember whose blog it was on, it was someone who's quite... Uh, Cal Evans, I think. Um, uh, someone who's quite prominent in the PHP community was blogging about the one thing not to do in a talk and I saw that title and I clicked it because I was like I bet it's in every one of my slides and I clicked it and it was like um it's it's giving the audience basically something that they're gonna gonna go and get on github and look at all this stuff while you're talking Um, it's distracting your own audience which I think I've done in the past I've tried to show too much code you can't any what we're saying is you can't get a complex technical concept across in 45 minutes well not the implementation so what I'm doing now is more conceptual stuff when I do talks. Like why I did at PHP UK, I did the comic book continuity, and I didn't show a single line of code. And I don't think I'm going to show a single line of code because I'm going to have designers in the room and I'm going to have um, probably marketing people and all sorts of people. And I want to make it interesting and relevant to all of them. But also what I think you can do with that is you can give the people who already know it metaphor and tools to explain it to their colleagues and explain it to the community at large and get more ideas out there. Mm. Um, a more well you know better ways of articulating concepts and I think that that is sort of um, I found that quite encouraging and inspiring but also quite daunting to you've got 45 minutes to get something across and you've got a mixed room of people who are going to know it backwards like James Cry is going to be in the room and he's written a book on grunt so he knows it Um, and I know he's nice enough not to throw anything at me well not unless I'm really boring um, and then you're going to have people in the room who perhaps work in marketing and have very little interest in these things. Um, so I've got to be, you know, do my best to be entertaining and energetic and uh, um, have slides of kitties and stuff so I can keep myself smiling. Um, uh, one thing I did think of, I don't know if I've ever done this in the talk, is pick someone in the front row and give them a can of Guinness and a can of Red Bull. And I say, if I'm speaking too fast, give me the Guinness. If I'm speaking too slow, give me the Red Bull. And then it'd be like Alice in Wonderland. It'd be like medicating how fast I'm talking during the presentation. So, so I might do that. You should definitely do that. Yeah. <laughs> I think you'll, you'll be done really well for that, if nothing else. <laughs> it, it's, it's been memorable, isn't it? But, but the other thing that he said in this blog post um, was 
pick something, an example, if you want to show some example of a system or something, you know, show just boxes and flowcharts or whatever, make it something daft that they'll remember. And what he said was MySpace for penguins or something like that. And um, so then you're not giving away sort of business critical information or anything like that, but you're using a daft toy example and it's not enough that it's going to make people go scrabbling around your GitHub while you're trying to talk to them. Mm. Um, not that I want to stop people from, you know, if they want to go on their laptops and cruise around, then that, that's fine. They don't have to engage with my talk that they've presumably paid partially at least to hear. Um, that's not a problem. Um, but I want those that want to get some, that, you know, are interested and in that the topic is relevant to, I want them to get maximum out of it. And I don't want to just sort of stitch myself up in the first five minutes and have everyone reading a bunch of blog posts while I'm talking. Yeah. What you could do is print out your code samples. In, yeah, and about like forty sheets of E4, and hand them out to everybody just as the talk starts. What I thought about as well is uh, sticking code samples to the bottom of everyone's chair and then being like Oprah, like you get a method, you get a method, you get a method. It'd be amazing. <laughs> so I'll be giving away uh, copies of the Build Tools book that I wrote with um, five simple steps. Yeah, um, cool. Well, you know, it's going to just go up on the Radify blog basically, um, so it's going to go up on the day. Um, and it'd just be like radify.io slash blog and you'd be able to find it. And it's just basically the book as it was and people can just download it or just read it on the blog. Because, um, you know, uh, did we talk about this on the last podcast that Five Simple Steps had shut their doors? I, think I don't we did, didn't think we? we did. No, I don't think so. Oh, in case we didn't. Well, Five Simple Steps was being run by the lovely uh, Craig and Amy Lockwood who have just done so much for the community. Like when they ran, they let us have Unified Diff in, in, their, in their premises. And, um, yeah, that was awesome. It was fantastic. It was the best venue we've had so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, it was just really, really – they were always super cool. And they did uh, the Five Simple Steps label, and they published stuff by Dan. And I know that they, they got the label off someone else, didn't they? But they maintained it so well, and they had these lovely books. Um, and, unfortunately, they, they, they had to discontinue. But massive thanks to them for everything that they did. But speaking of Unified Diff, uh, I don't know if you wanted to, to talk about the ideas you've been having. Yeah, I've been having some ideas about maybe starting Unified Diff meetups back up again. Um, we put it on hold, um, sort of summertime last year, mm. um, because we didn't really have the time to to dedicate to us. I say we, you were pretty much running up single handedly by that point, and you did enough for doing it. And <laughs> it was uh, just having to do talks every other month was the problem. That, yeah. that I was sick of the sound of my own voice. Yeah, so that the, there are a few problems. The biggest problem, as we discussed on this podcast before, so I won't rehash it, but. Uh, we couldn't really find speakers on a regular basis, and we unfortunately were being run on a regular basis, so um, <laughs> yes. which is not a good combination. So what we're thinking of doing now, and the third, the third problem ties into that, then is that you know um, we were using Acorn Acorn Recruitment in Cardiff for awesome, letting us use their space. Yeah. But obviously, we had to let them know when we needed it, and um, we were sort of sort of you know having a room set aside for us, and then struggling to fill it, and just didn't. It just wasn't. It wasn't great. It wasn't great for all parties concerned. Um, something has changed now in that um, the company I work at, Bipsync, we now have an office in Cardiff that's big enough to host meetups, uh, which is great because it means we don't have to worry about sort of finding space if we wanted to hold any, any meetups at any point. Um, so that's a benefit. It means we could possibly run Unified Diff in an ad hoc format instead of a you know sort of a, a bi-monthly or is it bi-monthly or how does it, yeah, I, 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 I think by month. Oh, yeah, it's confusing because by monthly does that mean twice a month? Or yeah, exactly. I just say every other month. Yeah. I think it's Let's just go unequivocal. Let's yeah. just go with that. So it, it, rather than trying to run it every month or every other month, we can just run it mm-hmm. if we want to when we have speakers. And then that yeah. means the final thing, the only issue then is that we have to have speakers. And I think it's more achievable and more realistic to you know get people together you know 
whenever we can yeah um rather than you know trying to pressurize ourselves into finding them and yeah so that that becomes the big that becomes the big problem then is is, is speaker so we're going to give it a go hopefully again sometime in the next well in the summer ideally is, is when i was thinking and um because mm. all we need really is two speakers if we can't find two speakers to speak at some point in the next three months then yeah you know that's that's pretty dire so in all likelihood if we can if we can do it if we can find people to speak because the other thing is that we don't want to we don't want it to be us speaking as well as, as what you've said and I, and I agree with you um i'm sure nobody wants to see the same like five or six people speak every every time more, no more than we want to do it so yeah um finding speakers is the next challenge so if anybody's mm-hmm. listening and does fancy speaking then please you know get in touch with myself or gav or anybody else who's involved in running it and um and let us know because at unified be, diff on twitter is uh, one way you can get in hold of us um because it would be great to start it back up again just purely because um even though there's still um you know quite a, quite a good set of dips in cardiff they tend to be all uh, specific or you know rather they they target a certain subset of, of technology or programming or coding you know there's the, there's the microsoft stuff that steph locked us there's more sort of company-ish ones you know focused mm-hmm. around um startups and that the, like the Cardiff start group and um we still don't really have a just a general tech meetup since since we stopped doing it so we could have something even if it is very sporadic i think oh i so. agree um there's uh did you mention aws south wales has started as well no so yeah i'm i'm speaking at that on wednesday um in swansea and there's going to be one in cardiff um coming up after that and i'll be speaking at that one i'm speaking at that one as well Are you? <laughs> <laughs> i just basically said i'd do a lightning talk at both rather than do a bigger talk so it'd just right. be like a 10 10 15 minute thing uh, the one i'm doing on wednesday is about machine users um which you can read about on the ratified blog um so yeah i'm quite quite excited about that they're going to broadcast it in vr i don't know what i that saw means. that yeah I, <laughs> I don't even know what it means does that mean i've got to have a headset to talk or have I got to be virtualized? Am I still real? Am I still me? I think it means you've got to wear a green costume, doesn't it? <laughs> I've got that green backdrop though, but every time I use it, people think I'm in ISIS because it's just like <laughs> the same color background that they're using in all the ISIS videos. I think it's your beard and poor haircut that makes people think you're in ISIS. I'm not sure it's anything to do with the green <laughs> um, Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm not 100% sure exactly what I'm going to be talking about at the, um, at the Cardiff one. I was thinking maybe something to do with. Um, Oh, you actually are talking about it, talking at it. Oh, sorry, yeah. I misunderstood you. I thought you wanted me. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> no, I genuinely am. <laughs> oh, right, okay. I thought it's just because I said I was. You you had to as well, like when you kids. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, that is true for most things I do. That It is just mostly in competition with you, but <laughs> yeah. not, in this, not in this case. Um, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking talking about how we use AWS's um, facilities to uh, encrypt data and make sure that data is secure. Um I'd be then, interested in that. Definitely yeah, be interested in that. Yeah, it's, it's it'd probably suit a lightning talk more than it would a, a bona fide sort of fully fledged thing. So it depends on how long they want me to talk for. Um, yeah. In their best interest, probably not very long. Well, so, most of the talk slots on Wednesday are like 20 minutes. Even the Amazon um, guys ones down at 20 minutes. So I think, you know, if, if, if you're aiming for 10 to 20, I think you'll be you'll be golden, I think. I don't, I'm not doing a lot of AWS stuff at the moment. Since, since Matt Wilson joined us, he's... Um, He's sort of taken over a lot of the lot of the systems management design sort of stuff. So, but the stuff I I was doing sort of like last year, um, mostly centered around that sort of making making our architecture more, you know, um, secure from a data point of view. 
um, mm-hmm. deep, working with pen testers and that sort of stuff. So I, I think I could talk about some of that. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's nice to have a an AWS thing because we, we saw when we did, um, you know, events, Unified Diff that were focused on AWS, there's a massive sort of appetite for that sort of stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, hopefully that's going to be successful as well. It's such a huge arena, and I think that more and more devs are expected to do some part of it as, as part of their job. Um, I think that, and that's got pros and cons because it's, you know, it's interesting and it's new ideas and it's new things to learn, which, you know, is, is often fun. But I think there's a lack of kind of, well, we read this article, didn't we? The sad state of sysadmin in the age of containers. Um, mm. What did you make of that? I thought it was really funny. It was quite, there's a lot of insight in there, but it was also incredibly amusing. There were some really nice one-liners in there. There's yeah. one about how long, the one I like the most was, how long is it going to be until, yeah, you get an ask toolbar that's installed with Docker, you know, because <laughs> people have just got this, um, I mean, I, I can't speak from experience because I, I, I don't use Docker. So just I, I, my, my experience of it, as we've talked about previously on the show, is very limited. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I'm aware of the fact that people can just download these containers and, and run them and you know they're just out there that you can just grab them and install them and run them and because yeah. they're so um th- so throwaway um i mm-hmm. guess it's, there's a temptation just to like just bang something in and, and let it go off and like you know grab an nginx container from somewhere or grab a php fpm container from somewhere yeah. and start running and it's the idea that you know he just like fly fly through the wizard you know the installation wizard yep 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 yep, yep. and the next thing the next thing you open up in the explorer you've got this like massive fat toolbar at the top of it where'd that come from you've got like a yeah a web browser that's about five pixels tall because the yeah. rest is toolbars so. <laughs> yeah um so i thought that was quite funny but well docker themselves have actually taken steps for this um oh yeah yeah i got an email from them today well you know a mass email not like they're picking me out individually for being brilliant or anything but they've got docker security scanning uh formerly known as nautilus is now available for free preview for cloud customers if you've got paid repos and what it does is it goes up the chain basically because what the way docker works is every image is built on an image above it is built on an image above it you know to to the point where you just get to like a you know bare bones image sort of thing yeah and it's like a layered thing and it go it goes through each layer and goes oh is there anything that's known to be dodgy in here and I think with everything like this, I've been currently working on some tools um, for NPM and PHP that do something similar uh, because there are command line tools. Um, well, there's a, there's a web uh, API that Sensio do where you can scan your composer lock and then there's similar things for for NPM package JSONs. Um, the problem is, though, people put them hooked into their build loop. Well, what if your, uh, um, your package isn't changing on a daily basis and a vulnerability comes out? Um, so any vulnerability scanner, it's like you've got to run it at least daily, in mm. my opinion. So I've just been working on some scheduling tools for that, just internally at Radify at the moment, but I might open source it if, it's, uh, if it turns out to be any good. Um, but yeah, I, I like the idea that there's some automation, but you, you, you can't get away from the fact that we were talking about it when we were talking about NPM last time and how you know, you've got these tiny little uh, libraries, but that it's our responsibility as engineers to, to know what we're building on. Yeah, totally. Um, so I think, you know, it is only a sad state if you are literally just pulling things off the shelf because they've got a funky title, adding them to their project and it, to your project and assuming they work. So I, I just give the same advice as I, I would give with a virtual machine or, or anything else, making sure it's constantly patched, make sure it's, you know, rebuild it from scratch as often as, as you can sometimes. You know, the immutable infrastructure approach works for Docker as well. Yeah. Um, the one thing I think of, though, with Docker is that the machine it runs on um, you need to maintain as well if you're sort of running kind of a, a piece of metal. 
mm. and you're running Docker on it, you need to make sure that that machine gets patched and all, all that kind of stuff as well. Um, but what I don't really know much about with Docker yet is what's the uh, what are the options for sort of running containers like managed containers. I know there's like Kubernetes and there's Swarm and there's, there's all this stuff, and it's quite a baffling sort of thing because so so far I've run Docker as single threads. That's right. all I really know about. Just run Docker, and it's do- all Docker is is a thread. Um, but yeah, I mean, how much how much security stuff from an operating system level do you think would you expect a developer to know? Well, this is the thing with this whole push, this move towards DevOps. You know, I mean, in theory, asking developers to take a great responsibility for systems administration and management is 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 correct because. You know, it, it 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 completely avoids that breakdown of like you know the over the wall sorts of stuff that you know we all we all agree is by and large a bad thing. Yeah. But the downside is that you're really asking people who don't really have a, a background and a grounding in what makes good systems administration and mm. um, to to step up almost overnight really and and do a good job of it, which isn't isn't really feasible. Certain developers you know, learn to program by you know messing around on on Unix systems or whatever you know, and they they, they therefore got an understanding of it. But I didn't learn that way. I did the majority of my early programming on uh, on like a basic computer and then on Windows and I didn't really I wasn't exposed to a server environment until really my first job and even then I sort of kept away from it the majority of the time it wasn't until I got to my next job my my, my second job really that I um, actually you know, was exposed to uh, you know Unix servers so if I'd been asked earlier in my career to, to to have done that it would have been an absolutely hor- horrendous thing for the company to have done because I was just used to downloading things on the internet and, and storing them and, and and a way to go. And that's why I was so amused with the article. At one point, he makes a reference to it being a bit like um, shareware on Windows in the ni- in the mid nineties, <laughs> which is exactly what I would have been like if I'd been put in that situation. I was literally just downloading things off the internet and running them. Yeah. And I remember at one point I did a, vi- I did a virus scan. I had like over a thousand viruses on my machine. It was absolutely. Dang. <laughs> yeah, it was just it was just absolutely crazy. It was, it was you no. Know, I, I frequently had to just wipe my hard drive and start again because it's constantly, you know, I was like you know fourteen, fifteen, and doing what I was doing. But um, the danger is you get you're asking people who, who are coming from that sort of background. Um, I know it's different these days potentially, but you know they come from that sort of background and asking them to manage the system in a way that you'd expect a forty year old, fifty year old, incredibly mature sysadmin, you know, neckbeard type who's security paranoid and that's just not going to be the case i think you need you need that tension i think i don't know if this is a good metaphor or not but is it like asking lewis hamilton to maintain his own car Um, (laughs) yeah you know he's a cracking racing driver but does he know how to you know tune an engine yeah and um I, i think there will always be a place for specialists as much as a lot of people a lot of people are cross functional to a fault or they would like to pretend that developers are, and sysadmins are interchangeable. They're not. They're, they're, there are often people who are sort of straddle both worlds, like I do. But I wouldn't say I was an expert sysadmin. I sort of come down more on the developer side for sure. Um, but I, I just feel that I have to learn as much as I can about doing sysadmin properly, because I'm a, I'm in a small organisation. Um, but it's it's always so enlightening when I do talk to someone like you mentioned Matt Welsh when I do get like a bit of his time and just chat to him I learn so much off him uh, and I, I just write down what he says and go away and Google a lot of it a lot of the time you know it isn't even just the, the experience it's the interest as well you know he's, he's genuinely yes. interested he goes home and he I loves it actually you know works on this stuff like uh, for me like, I, would, I would never in a million years do that you know I can 
I can sometimes barely bring myself to go home and mess about with code. I certainly mm. wouldn't go up and, and, and do it with sysadmin stuff, you know, if, unless I had a, you know, a, a, an obvious reason to do so. Um, so, yeah, this, there's that thing where there's going to be a, a line. Uh, at some point, you know, people, developers are going to draw a line as to what they are capable of doing, what they're willing to learn to be capable of doing. Mm. Um, and that's the point where things can break down, you know. Uh, the, um, there's an <laughs> yeah. example in that article about, you know, piping stuff straight into... Um, a, running a curl, um, running a curl command and piping it straight into Bash, you know. Like, I remember oh, when, yeah. when Composer was launched, that was the recommended way to, to install Composer, you know. Um, just, just, just pipe our, just pipe our script straight into, straight into Bash, and it's, you know, it. <laughs> I've got problems. images as the uh, Jack Nicholson Joker in the Batman film now. Hey, I'm the guy who's giving you money, you know. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah it's, it, it's it's one thing to you know to to to, to do it when you're just installing some sort of you know, um, package manager. But if you get in the habit of thinking that's an okay thing to do, mm-hmm. or if, you know, if they if they were to get compromised, you know, and and you install something that's going to, you know, compromise your system, um, once the, once the seed's been planted that you think that's an okay thing to do, next thing you find yourself doing it on a, you know, on a production server, it's not a good, it's not a good thing. People like the NSA would be absolutely rubbing their hands over this sort of <laughs> practice, you know, because... It, it, Surely, the way things are going, it can't, it can't be easier an easier time to to get compromised things onto onto servers because uh, in a, in a way it's a bit like the wild west. Anyway, we've got people who, do, who haven't really been trained in how to do that and how to manage these these things and uh, sort of like let loose on mass. Um, but I guess it is it's a case of obviously um, ed- education and, and time for things to sink in and for practices to sort of like you know settle down and. And in a way, we're sort of backing away from from actually maintaining servers by hand anyway. And if the tooling that we use to orchestrate them becomes, you know, um, so easy to use and so you know well sort of um, well built to to avoid things like this being being executed, then it becomes less of an issue, I suppose, in the long run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I suppose the platform as a service thing um, is where the the devs can sort of be standing up nodes and doing that that level of stuff reasonably safely because hopefully the platform as a service provider are regularly patching these things but if you're doing anything more sophisticated with a lot of moving parts you probably really need to understand what's going on under the hood yeah yeah so um a bit of bad news this week um in a friend of ours that we both work with um uh, the name of John Greenway unfortunately passed away after a long illness um, and I think you and I just wanted to sort of briefly sort of share some thoughts on what uh, first of all and foremost what a lovely guy he was absolutely um, just one of those people where you know did yeah, those these sorts of phrases are sort of like you know overused like wouldn't hurt a fly or you know mm. um, that sort of thing but he, he was genuinely one of the nicest people I think I've ever met um, he was a lovely guy. Really you know, bad word nice to say guy. about anybody. Um, and he was also phenomenally good programmer. And obviously, at the time we met him, he was more of like a um, like a project manager. Mm. Um, I mentioned this to uh, some of the guys earlier today. He was the first person I met who I think genuinely understood how to run a software project. Um, <laughs> you know, yes, like I think else, that's true. Everyone else had like you know vaguely really good ideas, but he was absolutely sort of um, just single-minded and um confident and it just mm. uh it, it was a bit of a um 
I guess a bit of an well, epiphany is the wrong word, but seeing him sort of put that into action um, in such a in such a you know um, methodical way was it was a a massive sort of inspiration for me mm. uh, in terms of you know how to, how to treat software development in a professional manner um, and uh, yeah learned an absolute lot shed load from him and he's really going to be missed. It's a massive it's a sad loss for for our you know sort of um, profession in Cardiff for sure because he's, he's had a big impact on a lot of people um, and it's really sad that he's been taken from us so early I think absolutely um, yeah I just echo that I, um, John brought like uh, order to chaos uh, he was always very calm very composed and you know I never got to know him like super duper well we worked with him for um, not as long as I would have liked to but um like he often would come to Unified Diff and I was on the pub quiz team with him once and we absolutely dominated everyone. <laughs> He's just that damn good. And obviously his resemblance to John Carmack was uh, was another strong point in his favour. But yeah, John John was awesome. <laughs> that was probably um, the best thing about him, actually. Like that yeah. was his claim to fame. Was how, how, yeah, he was a spitting image of John Carmack. He was a spitting image of John Carmack. But yeah, absolutely fantastic guy. I'm gutted to hear that he's passed away. And uh, our condolences to his uh, family and friends. Um, so the the last thing that we sort of had down to speak about was what the good, what what's the good and the bad about working in our profession, being a software developer, an engineer. Mm. Um, there are a couple of, um, well, there was a, there was a I, I saw a post on Hacker News, um, a guy called Brett Slatkin was just listing the negatives as he saw it. Of working as a developer or as a tech lead or as a, a manager um, mm-hmm. and he said that he was listing these things because he thinks that it would be nice for people to sort of see them and look basically at what we've got to work towards in terms of improving the quality of our profession he, he wasn't doing it in a particularly sort of like you know negative way he was saying these are what I think the bad things are we should look to improve these things you know um, and then that was followed up by an article um, by a guy called Alex Crass and he was um, I assume it's a guy, actually. Sorry, it could be could easily be a girl. So, someone called Alex Crass um, talked about the positives um, and sort of counted them. And I think the majority of the things they mentioned, you know, are, are, are things that you'd expect to see in a, in a list like this if you if you've been working in this field for a while. And Brett's actually, I think, a bit, a bit more experienced than Alex, and that's probably why he's well, or possibly why he's a bit more optimistic, a bit less optimistic than he is. Um, <laughs> Funny that. <laughs> yeah, so like he lists some things like if you're just a general sort of coder, then you'd be frustrated by there's no documentation or the tests are slow or um, things are broken in production that can't be produced locally and um, I'm always waiting room for other people. Um, nobody respects my opinion. I work my ass off and then someone tells me to redo it, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Alex was sort of countering with um, a lot more positives. And I think, like I said, maybe because he's a bit younger, but... To me, um, it, it certainly comes across as the, the, the issues that, that Brett raised are are very specific to your job and can, and can be solved, if not by doing your job in a better way, at least by moving to different jobs and, and working with better people. Whereas the, 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 the upsides that Alex mentions, like money being quite good, um, he points out his income is in the top 20% in the US and even better as a percentage in the world, which is true. I mean, I think it's one of the better paid jobs you can probably get now as, you know, as a um, as somebody's fresh out of university, as a career, it's a, it's, a, it's a lucrative career to get into if you're good at it. Um, you know, you can you can work anywhere in the world, potentially. It isn't lim- uh, 
isn't limited to where you are. Thanks to the internet, you can work anywhere. Um, you know, it, depending on the company you're working for, there could be lots of cool perks, like a flexible work schedule, being able to work from home. Um, I certainly benefit from that. You know, I, it's amazing being able to work from home on occasion when I need to, or being able to be flexible so I can work with my family. That's just amazing. Um, getting to work with other smart people. Um, I so I, I still sort of fall on the optimistic side. I think having read both articles, um, I think, like I said, I, I could I can deal with the issues raised in the negative article by just basically t- taking it on the chin and and. and and making a change for the for the good, you know. Whereas the the positives are pretty much true wherever you are, whatever's happening. So there's a lot to be think there's a lot to be thankful for, I guess. But where do you fall in that? I guess. Um, I think I'm very grateful for the job I have. Um, just personally speaking, um, I've been at the um the homeless shelter tonight, like helping out there, charity work, mate. Don't like to talk about it, but there was there was a, a guy there, just like you know, clearly really distressed and nowhere to stay and everything. I was just like on the way back talking to my mate about it, you know, who helps out there as well. I'm just thinking, like, really fortunate to have what we have, you know, at all, um, and that you know, I'm not down a coal mine. This isn't, you know, it might give me a bad back or or something like that, but. It's not gonna, you know, wreck my lungs and my health, and you know, the, the jobs that people have done throughout most of history are much, much harder and more physically taxing. Um, but there is a downside to that that we're not like exhausted in the same way when we get into bed at night as someone who had been working in a field or or what have you, or lifting things or um, proper jobs, you know. Yeah. Um, so when we get into bed, sometimes the mind is still racing and the body's not exhausted yet, and it's like the body is designed to move. Um, but again, like you said, there's often ways you can get around this. Like I go to the gym most days and I'll either do like weights or martial arts or something. And I've, I always try to do something, um, to tire the body out as well. Um, Mm. but without that, I, I get into bed and I'm like irritable and, you know, I can't sleep and all that. Um, and the, the, there are pros and cons to every job and like nothing is perfect, but um, I'm finally trying to be more positive about things because you know, if you know me long enough to know that I'm a whinger. Um, but <laughs> I think that I'm trying really hard not to be like that anymore um, because I think there are real problems to, to working with code all day. I think it's not necessarily the greatest thing for your social skills. I think that that is a genuine thing because people make the assumption when you work in software that you haven't got any social skills. And in my case, that happens to be more or less true. Um, But that's certainly not true of everybody. Um, When people meet me, they say, what do you do for a living? And I just say, look at the state of me. I could only be a software developer. (laughs) And that is the truth because, you know, I am very scruffy and very, very unkempt. And I could not get away with the things I get away with. Um, You know, I used to be very cheeky and... And I, I, I think in past jobs, I think I used to take the mick a little bit and get away with murder because I was reasonably good at what I did. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of regret and a lot of shame about that now. Uh, and it's that's awesome, almost a pro and a con that I could get away with being an idiot, but that I did get away with being an idiot, if you see what I mean, like an unruly child. And I think working in software kept me a man-child until my 30s, partly because I wasn't sort of pushed in the same way that people in jobs with more social interaction are pushed. I could sort of put my headphones on and lock myself away for most of the day. Hmm. Um, so I think that you don't get the same opportunities to grow socially. Um, and I think most of us don't want that. Or, or And most of the time I don't. I'm a terrible introvert. I'm terrible. It's not a bad thing to be. But I, I'm a, a strong introvert. 
Um, but yeah, I, I have that instinct to be sociable. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I've met a lot of people who are genuinely introverted. I wouldn't put you in that category. I think you're, you're quite a social person. Um, you know, you, you don't get involved with running meetups and, you know, therefore... I suppose that's true, yeah. I you know, that it, is true. It, it could be a lot worse. I mean, I, I do agree yeah. that you aren't necessarily the most social person I've ever met, but I wouldn't I wouldn't sort of say you're introverted or anything. Um, I do the, do that defensive wetting myself thing when, when girls look at me, didn't I, back in the day? Did you? Remember that? Yeah, when girls used to look at me, I just wet myself. Like uh, like an like an octopus, or a squid. I wasn't aware that's what that was, but now, now you've said that, it, it answers so many questions I had. I was just nervous, just nervous. Um, yeah, I think you spend all you spend all day in your head, pretty much. If you're a you know a dedicated developer, um, yeah, that's exactly. I think you've nailed it with that. And therefore, I think certainly I find, I find it hard to transition sometimes back into you know spending time with the family or something mm. if I've been you know if I've been sort of concentrating hard all day to sort of get back into sort of using your using your tongue and you know actually thinking about somebody else's point of view um, for a minute you know that, that doesn't yeah. necessarily come come easy straight away so um there's there's that angle to it I think um obviously ideally the, you should be working a job where you're exposed to people um on a fairly regular basis so it's what it's what making time then to sort of break out from your mm. actual, you know, coding tasks and taking advantage of your coworkers to sort of keep you a bit more, you know, sociable. But it's not always feasible. And it's not always something you no. want to do if you've got a big, a big job on. You want to concentrate, and you don't necessarily want to be pestered or bothered. So, yeah, yeah, um, it's hard working in a remote team for that. That's another reason I go to the gym every day because you know I see my mates there and like I, I help coach Thai boxing and boxing, and that's really good to to do a bit of teaching and. That yeah. keeps keeps my hand in the social game, but sometimes uh, my wife will get home from work and uh, she'll be talking to me, and I'm just sort of going, yeah, yeah, and I'm not really listening. And then I'll catch myself doing it. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, I've still got my head in this problem from earlier. Yeah. Um, and working from home, you feel like you're never off, but that is such a zeroth world problem. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'm aware of how ridiculous it is as I say it, and really, I'm really blessed. You know, hashtag blessed. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. We are, and that's the point. The article does the, the the more positive one is. I think by and large, we are quite blessed to be in a job that's, you know, has incredible rewards for very little, you know, um, very little um, sort of inconvenience to ourselves. You know, like you mentioned, you know, we're not sort of working in the field, getting tired. We're coming home tired every day. Mm. Um, Cara's father's a, a um, like a, a foreman at a carpentry firm, literally falls asleep most nights because he's so tired from the work he's done during the day, you know. Um, even Proper if I worked job. until I was 60-odd, um, you know, wherever he is, like mid-50s, I'm sure doing the job I'm doing now, if I was still doing that, I, w- I wouldn't be in that sort of situation. You know, it's not, it is not hard graft. Mm. Um, it's not dangerous. Uh, you know, it's not the sort of thing that's going to... It's quite dangerous because I've just found two wasabi peas under my keyboard and I'm going to eat them. <laughs> No, I'm not dying. It. I don't think so. Anyway, oh, it's like cardboard. Oh, that was horrible. I shouldn't have done that. <laughs> Sorry, you just completely destroyed my point there. Sorry, <laughs> you could have you could have dropped dead. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I think we're very lucky that uh, that Brett guy. He's uh, he needs to lighten up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I think there's such a thing as identifying problems and taking steps to fix them 
and I can understand where he's coming from. I think he's perhaps been a little bit tongue in cheek with his article, maybe. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a good thing to identify problems, and sometimes um, I don't. I would never want to be one of those people that says, "Don't come to me with problems; come to me with solutions," because I think that's you know toxic. But I think <laughs> saying, "Come to me." with your solutions if you got them but if not let's deal with the problems you know let's try and work it out together because that's that's why we work in teams isn't it because none of us are totally self-sufficient yeah exactly yeah you make me hungry now you mentioned those peanuts and I think I'm needing some food <laughs> they were horrible yeah I know I've got a I've got a um, like a pot of you know like lunch semi-finished stuffed peppers downstairs that are about seven days past their sell by date I should probably get on those. Why you no tuna like lunch? No, I sadly don't have a tuna like lunch to eat. I managed to keep a tuna like lunch on my desk for well, I, I was I was given it for Christmas in a in a, a very strange box for my father. Um, I won't go into that, but it was basically he gave this this tuna like lunch to me. Told me he really enjoyed them, um, and I looked at the server date on it because I'm suspicious about fishing packets. I don't really understand how that works, um, and it was. It was due to expire, I think it was 2013, and this was 2009, maybe. So I thought, I know what I'll do. I'll actually wait until the day this thing expires, and then I'll eat it to see if it's still okay. And I kept this thing on my desk for, for about four years, and numerous times people questioned why it was there and explained. Um, and then come the day it expired, it was June the, I think it was like June the 12th, 2013, I, just, I realized I could not bring myself to eat it. And I thought I thought I'd be I'd easily be able to get somebody in the office to to step up and eat this thing. I thought you would be a certain bet because you've Don't got really very like low you've got very low standards when it comes to eating food, as we've just witnessed. But you've seen me eat food out of a bin, haven't you? Well, exactly. Um, but not even you would eat it, which says a lot for how despicable this tuna night lunch actually was. Um, and even Rachel um, Rachel Crewsmith, who used to work with us, even she wouldn't eat it and. That's Again, something. Yeah, she would eat anything. So <laughs> I've seen it. I've seen her eat something that's been like a week past its sell by date, and it's just like, no, please yeah. don't. Yeah. So, yeah, um, it puts your two wasabi peanuts into into, <laughs> into stock into stock relief. Yeah. Um, so yeah, tuna light lunches, non edible in any form is the uh, is the lesson there. 